Live from the MacGyver Project Studios in sunny, warm Wisconsin, it's Nick with the Outstanding Authors Podcast. My guest today is George Vesey, an author and former sports columnist for the New York Times. He covered his first World Cup for the Times in 1982 at a time when there wasn't much soccer coverage in the U.S. Uh, he ended up covering every World Cup from 1982 until 2010, eight in total, and he wrote about his experiences in his book, Eight World Cups. All right, let's give him a call. Hello, how are you? Hey, George, I'm good. How are you tonight? Okay, okay. Is this still a good time for you? Yes, sir. Yeah, thanks for talking with me. I just uh, finished your book today, actually, and I really enjoyed it. Um, so, Thank you. Uh, I'm a big big soccer fan, so looking forward to... What's, what's your team? What's your favorite club? Uh, you know, I, I kind of am a little hesitant to admit it, but I'm a Manchester United fan. And the reason I come kind of hesitant to admit it is because I generally like to root for the underdog and everything. Yeah. Um, but just going back to when I was a kid, uh, they were the team that I kind of gravitated toward. And then I kind of learned later that they were kind of like the evil empire. Um, uh, but, um... My, my my other team, like more kind of like non traditional team, is uh, Swansea City. There you go. Um, and when it comes to national teams, I kind of like like Paraguay. Um, actually, going back to um, the '98 World Cup, um, do you remember their goalie? Uh, uh, the, the, goal, the goalie who took penalties, right? Yeah, Chilavert. He was a, yeah, yeah. He, he was a he was a big guy who who took penalties yeah. and, and free kicks. Yeah, and he. Um, and and they they almost beat France actually and um yeah. and, and kind of ever since then I kind of have been a little bit of a Paraguay fan. <laughs> that's, that's very nice. I I went to West Ham a couple of times on a story in two thousand three. Okay. I have a soft spot for them. I don't even know place for them at the moment, but I always look to see where they're doing. And, yeah. You know, a lost cause to be sure. West Ham they got the bubbles right. They they blow blow exactly. the bubbles. They're always um, on. Yeah, exactly. They they a guy named uh, Jermaine Defoe was okay. with them. Right. He scored a goal in about the 89th minute. Yeah. Um, I think he even came on as a sub. And it was a rainy, nasty night in February, and everybody left the place singing "I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles." It was very yeah. <laughs> very sweet. Cool. Well, yeah. So going back to 1982, um, sure. when you covered your first World Cup, how many other American reporters do you think were covering the World Cup at that time? You know, I've I've gone over that in my mind. Um, I know um, Graham Jones from the LA Times was there. I think the whole time, and he did as many World Cups as I did. So we were we were like I think direct contemporaries. Um, Dave Kindred of the Washington Post and uh, Hubert Mizell of the St. Petersburg Times were good pals, and they came over for part of it. And they, I know they were in Barcelona, I was, for that round of three. So I think they were there from then on. They, they came, like me, for the second round. Um, I don't remember any other papers having anybody. You know, there, there, no soccer writers or... You know, I just I just don't remember. But those, those I mean, Paul Gardner was there, of course. I mean, some of the the soccer specials. Paul Paul was definitely there. I knew him already, um, and that's who I remember. Did you get any kind of pushback from the New York Times, like like nobody cares about this? Why right? Why do you want to um, cover it? Or? No, it uh, no, not at all. Well, I did from from college, you know other reporters, yeah. pe- people. People I like a lot, but they just didn't see it. But I had been a, a news reporter from 
70 to 19. I was a sports writer, and then I became a news reporter from 70 to 80. And in the process, I became one of, you know, the group of reporters who had loyalty, had fought with, had survived a couple of dynamic editors. And they came up with a job for me in sports in 1980. And I remained one of their people. You know, the way it works in a big corporation. You know, I, I had the, the top guys considered me one of their, you know, cranky but useful guys. So when they, when they put me back in sports, I came to them. Uh, they made me a columnist early in 1982 when Red Smith uh, passed. And I said, you know, I, I just I want to do it a little bit differently. I'd like to do some international stuff. How about the World Cup? And they didn't know what it was. Once you went to the first one, you must have thought, "Oh, this is great! I'm, I'm gonna, gonna keep going back." Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I landed. I was in. I stopped off in rainy Wimbledon for a couple of days just to do something else, a column or two, and I was working on something. And I flew into Barcelona. It was sunny and hot, and you know, classic Spain summer. And then to go out and the first game. Now I can't remember the first game I saw. Had to be. Oh, I don't know. There were two groups in Barcelona, and I can't remember the first game I saw. It wasn't Italy against Brazil. It might have been Italy against Argentina, or it might have been Belgium and Poland or something like that. But anyway, see these two games back-to-back, um, and, and it was just nuts. I mean, to see what, what Brazil could do with the ball, how, how uh, disciplined Italy was, Argentina had young Maradona. I mean, just to see, I, I had no idea that soccer was played on that level. Mm-hmm. And at what point did you start to think of your experiences as a book? Was it um, like at like uh, in the in the middle of the run? Did you think, oh, maybe this could be a book, or was it more recent? I never did. Right. It wasn't until I had retired okay. at the end of 2011. I had just covered the World Cup in South Africa in 2010. Um, I had done. I had done kind of a book. In fact, I think the World Cup, well, I know the, the World Cup was in that one. It was sort of a diary of the year 1986. It's called A Year in the Sun. And I, I had a whole chapter on going to the World Cup, how I happened to be. In fact, if you want to find that somewhere, um, you know, that, that, that explains more of my background going out to Barcelona. But this was 86, so that was in Mexico when I actually got sick. Um, in Mexico and had to come home a little bit early. Um, but, but anyway, it, it, I retired at the end of 2011. Uh, it was time. I was 71, and they were offering a uh, pretty, pretty good buyout. So I took it. And um, I, I was hanging around the next, what, the next summer. And I was just thinking, 
thinking, you know, I'm, I'm still working for the Times. I, I was still, like, freelancing, part-timing for them just for fun. Well, they paid me, but it was, it was great fun. And I said, I really need a project. And I, I came up with an idea. I sent a note to my agent who hates soccer, but she's a great agent. And, uh, you know, she just, she was like rolling her eyes on the phone at soccer, a book on soccer, nobody cares. And, you know, five days later, she gets back to me and says, okay, I sold it. Because, <laughs> because that's how good an agent she is. Yeah. <laughs> Esther, Esther Newberg, E-S-T-H-E-R, okay. N-E-W-B-E-R-G. She's a great Red Sox and UConn uh, fan. Okay. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's what she likes. But, yeah. Man, she, she went out there and she found me a great editor, uh, uh, Paul Gollop, with the Holt Books, and uh, it went through the Times Books imprimatur, but he was the editor of it, and I just I just had a great time doing it. He was I, I've been really blessed, I have to say this, I've been really blessed in the editors that I've had in almost every book I've done. I've had really good people who pushed me, sharpened me, came back for more, didn't let up until they thought they had the book that, that I could give them. And in, in every case, they were right. And I, and I just really, it's a whole different process from working for a newspaper where things are more of the moment, where the quality of the writing, going back over things, redoing, or often it's just not possible or, or necessary. But in that case, they would say, why don't you, why don't you, Expand this chapter. And Paul Gollop, G-O-L-O-B, was the editor of the soccer book. And he deserves a lot of credit. And he had a nice staff working for him, uh, an assistant, a publicist, uh, even a techie who helped me with some stuff. So um, it was it was a great relationship. Yeah, and I really like the snapshots that you had of the different countries, and it felt a little bit like a, like a travelogue in addition to a sports yeah. book. And, and one of the things that stood out to me, just one of the stories, was the... the um, the U.S. versus Trinidad and Tobago, and um, I thought it was it was really um, kind of surprising and interesting how, like when you when you hear about U.S. going down to the Latin American countries, it always sounds like a like a, some some hostile crowds, but in that case, they were really respectful and friendly, and it seemed like that made a big impression on it, you. It it still echoes to this day, and as you notice in the book, when a, when. TNT qualified for 2006. I guess mm -hmm. this was the last match of the 2005 uh, play-ins, and I, I went to this guy's house or uh, apartment in, in Brooklyn, and we sat around. I invited myself. They were they were Trinidadians, and we sat around drinking Trinidadian beer and uh, watching the, the match. I even arranged for um, Paul Caliguri to be on the phone, so I called right. Caliguri. You know, you 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 read it, right. but I called him and he he agreed. Yeah, you know, sure, I'd love to talk to him. So yeah, hey, and then Paul Caligari's on the phone. <laughs> such, such a treat yeah. to see uh, TNT win that match. Who'd they beat? Um, I, I mean, Bahrain, I think. Yeah, I think. And uh, to see them win on television, and then to see them over there. They were based in Hamburg, and I saw them play an exhibition in in Hamburg, which is just a lovely city, just great. Wandered over to St. Pauli and saw them play against St. Pauli in a tune-up for the. And they did they did fairly well. They got some points, as I remember, and uh, annoyed a few teams. So it it was just a thrill to see them because the way that the fans had behaved. And the way that this Jack Warner now, you know, would become apparent over the years that Warner had oversold the stadium and put people in danger and made money for 
I was just a crook. Even before the FIFA scandal started, it was pretty clear he was a crook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of hard to fathom that the U.S. would knock them out of the the 1990. Um, uh, qualifying for the World Cup, and yet they were still so respectful and, and friendly to everybody. I, I think it only comes <laughs> from the the ethos of the people. I yeah. mean, it's a totally different, yeah, they're in the Caribbean, but it's a totally different um, place, a totally different background. Their, their, their mores are different, you know, whatever you want to say. They just had a different view of it. I, I don't think they they were not into the kinds of demonstrations, even, even when they were being discomforted by their own, uh, soccer lord, mm-hmm. they they took it with good humor. Uh, you know, not that they were docile or anything, just that they they were they had a different way of yeah. reacting to it. Yeah, one of the games that you wrote about, I actually was at. Also, um, it was a 1994 uh, round of 16, July 4th, USA versus Brazil at Stanford. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was I was 13 years old, and we were uh, on a summer vacation out to San Francisco area, and um, so it was not planned to intersect with the World Cup. It was just kind of happenstance. Um, and my dad uh, was a soccer coach um, for for young kids, and um, so he knew a lot of people in the soccer community, and he was able to uh, use one of his connections to get tickets. And so me and my parents and my sister went, and I still remember it pretty well and remember the, the, the Brazilian fans and just the festive atmosphere and it was it was pretty uh pretty amazing experience yeah yeah it was it was gonna be first of all the day i remember it was so hot it was an epic day and uh of course that that heinous elbow that uh, leonardo right. threw at uh at tab ramos I, I can still see him doing it i saw it live i was right you know, i, 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 I happened to have my eye on it because it was on a you mm-hmm. know jockeying on the on the end line and uh yeah, my memory of that game, at least, and I was only 13, but I, I remember thinking that even though the U.S. ended up with the man advantage, that they they were actually at a disadvantage after Tab Ramos went out because he was their best player and he was he was really making things happen. And once he went down, it seemed like they weren't quite the same. Exactly, he was their best player. Uh, and I think they acknowledged it, that the other players knew that he was the engine that, that made things work. He yeah. scored a goal once in a while, but he also knew how to play. And uh, without him, no, that, that part was missing. Nobody could replace him. And one of the things, too, that stuck out from, from the book is that um, you really uh, grinded as far as, like, um, like the South Korea-Japan World Cup. You flew back and forth, and you're taking trains all over the place in these different countries. And I was just curious, like... I, like I, I would think to do that, you must really have to have a not just some stamina, but also an adventurous spirit. And have you always loved to travel? And do you consider yourself an adventurous person? Uh, I'm definitely not an adventurous person. Okay. <laughs> but most most of my travel has been for the times. Yeah. Uh, on company money and with company backup. You know, including if you have a problem, you you know the times will get you a doctor or you know God forbid you know, a lawyer or you know whatever it was. So I, I've always operated in the, in the, uh, under the umbrella of the New York Times, and I, I've not taken any any real adventurous vacations. I mean, my wife and I have gone on some good vacations of our own, but frankly, when I retired, I haven't been on a plane in three years. I've mm-hmm. just had enough of, of going anywhere. But but to, to answer your question about that World Cup, the 2002 World Cup, it was a, 
to choose. The United States was based in Seoul, and I was very lucky. I guess I put this in the book, but I was very lucky to uh, to get a tip that they were staying in this Marriott Hotel on the south side of the Han River, H-A-N River. And uh, I managed to make a reservation for myself and also for Jerry Longman, who's our, who would be our uh, you know, he's an ace correspondent for the sports department. And, and he and I were both had, both had rooms reserved. Later, you know, a few months later, the Marriott called me from, or contacted me an email or whatever, from Marriott, uh, Mr. David Kim said, you know, we regret that we can't honor the reservation that because of security reasons we can't. And I said, no, Marriott made, and I, and I complained about it. I'm a Marriott Gold Card member and all that. And Marriott honored the reservation. So we were in the same hotel, uh, and it was a gorgeous hotel, just sensational. My wife was with me, and there was a pool in there, and uh, the subway station underneath where you could catch trains to go under the river to uh, to the main part of Seoul and great views. It, it, and of course, to get the press conference, all I had to do was, was flop out of bed and uh, you know clean up and go downstairs to the press conference if the U.S. team was having a uh, a press opportunity. So it was a great fun, and I loved Seoul. I I'm, I'm jealous right now of my friends who are going. I mean. Winter Olympics up in the mountains of South Korea is not the same as being in Seoul, but I love going around. And, 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 and the broader question you asked me about the grind of going places, taking the midnight trains back from, uh, you know, some city in the south of Korea, coming back into Seoul at, you know, at dawn in the morning or whatever, it, you just burn it. You burn it for five weeks, knowing that there's a, a finite end. It's not like covering a war, for goodness sakes. You know, you're not you're not wondering when will I ever get home again. You know, there's going to be a final in Yokohama on on such and such a day, and you just make your plans. So, even sometimes I was going on, you know, two hours sleep and uh, you know tired physically or this, but it was it was just the adrenaline carries you through. I mean, a chance to go from to fly from Seoul to Sapporo to see a replay of the Argentina-England match from 1998. You know, Beckham was still around and blah, blah, blah. And then Beckham won it with a, with a penalty, right, because, yeah. as I recall. That to be there and to, to be in, in, I knew it was the only, you know, 36 hours that I'd ever be in Sapporo necessarily. Right. And to see how different it was, to have a nice meal, a uh, great sushi meal that a friend of mine who knows Japan was able to pick. And then to go to this match and see, uh, you know, not not that not the good guys won. I don't care that much about Beckham or England. But just the idea of it, of, of the obvious natural story of him scoring the goal that, that, that won, it was just a hoot. And then to know that you'd be back on a plane and flying through Osaka back into Seoul, it, it, it was fine. I mean, I had a great time. But I should add this. My yeah. wife was with me, with me the whole trip. And she's a great traveler. She loves Seoul. She was getting all around. She met met somebody who was taking her around a little bit, a young woman who was like her guide. And then when I would come back at 2 in the morning or 5 in the morning from wherever I'd been, she often would have, you know, a snack, something good, uh, make sure that the room was quiet until I had to get up. So it really was uh, a thrill to be there with her because she had my back and, yeah. and was taking care of me in addition to exploring the place and finding, uh, you know, cultural things and, and restaurants and all of that. So we just had a great time. Yeah, it's great she's able to come with you. That's, that's awesome. Uh, um, yeah, exactly. 
So now I got some 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 tough questions for you here. So sure. for the for the the um, eight World Cups that you saw, who was the best player that you saw? There's no doubt in my mind. The best player I saw was Zidane okay. in the final yeah. in 1998. Okay. And so I'll put it that way: that Zidane achieved perfection on that day of a player in charge of his team and in control of himself. Because don't forget, he had had a uh, he had missed the game, suspended earlier in the tournament mm-hmm. for lashing out at an opponent. I mean, kind of a precursor to, to 2006. But he had come back for, I guess, the semifinal and then had, had been in the final. To see him, I don't know if you've ever seen the uh, – there's a YouTube somewhere of about five or seven-minute YouTube of Zidane as a dancer. He looked like a ba- ballet dancer, up in the air, heading the ball, passing it, dribbling it pausing, whoever made that, you know, the film clips of Zidane, but I think it was perfection of a football player that, that I've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's an interesting guy because on one hand, he seems kind of kind of stoic and 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 kind of calm, but then as you said, you know, there's an incident in 98 and then of course in 2006, and, and, and I remember the 2006 World Cup, even before he got red carded, that, that penalty kick he took was really cheeky. Um, you know, he, he did the, the kick where he just kind of does the little, little soft, soft tap. Um, and to do that in a world cup final, I thought it was kind of, yeah. kind of really ballsy. And yet he still had this, had this temper obviously. And, um, but, uh, yeah, I always thought he was a an hot, interesting a hot buggy day at the end of a tournament. He just went nuts. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I did, again, like, like, like an auto's, uh, elbow. Yeah. I saw it live. I mean, I didn't have to go back and look at the replay, right. but whatever reason, I saw Materazzi pulling up alongside him, or vice versa, and the two of them yapping at each other, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, Zidane just, just let him have it. I said, oh my goodness. <laughs> so then, um, a, a follow-up question then, how about the best team that you've seen? Oh, okay. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an answer. It's a team that didn't win the World Cup. It didn't even win the, you know, didn't win the game. Can I take a guess before you tell me? Sure, let, me, let, let me think for a minute. Um, didn't win the game. Uh, was it early on? Early on. Okay. Yeah, I'm a little, I'm a little rusty on right. on that. Right. Here's uh, what it was. It okay. was the 1982 Brazil team, okay. which was favored to win the World Cup, and Italy was an outsider because Rossi had been suspended. The team was bickering. There was all kinds of mm-hmm. intrigue going on. And they just gelled as a team with Rossi coming back into the team and, and just making everybody better by, by being there. And, and uh, Brazil had all that firepower and uh, a, a mediocre goalkeeper and poor defense, and, and they were offensive-minded. I can still see they had a right back named Leandro, uh, I think is number two, and I saw him go on offense. He makes a run down the right side, wherever we were sitting in this little Saria stadium. He makes a run, and all of a sudden the ball is behind him. And here comes, you know, Graziano, and um, I'm blanking on the other midfielder's name, and then Rossi coming in at an angle, and the ball gets to him, and bam, they've got a goal. And Leandro is like 50 yards up the field. He didn't know what hit him. <laughs> How about favorite national anthem? Oh, that's, that's interesting. I, I love uh, the Russian national anthem. The music is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love uh, I love the Italian national. Oh anthem. yeah, that's a good one. That is a really good one. Uh, and yeah. of course, I love the French na- 
Mm-hmm. That's a good one too. Yeah. I, I will say to be in the um, the Stade de France, yeah. Saint Denis, Paris, in in uh, in two thousand in nineteen ninety eight, yeah. and to hear the Marseillaise, which I've heard since I was a little kid. I mean, I I've been to France. I've, I've lived there for a month here and there. Uh, I love France, and mm-hmm. to be in that stadium and know that they were in the final. Uh, I didn't really care who won because I love Brazil also, but to hear that anthem, uh, it was gorgeous. But I, I love the Italy national because mm-hmm. I'm kind of a wannabe Italian. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and the Russian yeah. anthem, I heard that a lot. They've, they've changed the words mm-hmm. since 1986 when I heard it in, in Moscow. Mm-hmm. But uh, the music is the same, and it's just and actually actually the fourth one I would pick would be the German national. Anthem, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Which is which is beautiful. I yeah. You know, I, I took me a long time. I, I, I don't mind saying this. Took me a long time to be comfortable. You know, I, I go back. I can remember World War Two. I had a, yeah. uh, I had an aunt who died in uh, in Bergen Belsen. So you know, it took me a long time to uh, you know to be comfortable with, with what Germany was on a soccer level. And year after year, World Cup after World Cup, for them to come back and almost always be. Uh, Good, always good, and sometimes great, and to have terrific players and, and a sense of, of what they were doing, um, players you could relate to. I mean, Andreas Bremi and uh, uh, Lothar Mateos, and you know, Klinsmann as a player was just a, a flash. And so I've come to, and, and when they play that music now, to me it stands for it's like. Like Yankee fans feel about the Yankees, I can see how anybody would feel that way about, the, mm-hmm. about Germany because they play the game right, uh, they carry themselves right almost all the time, and this beautiful anthem. So it, it, it's a it's a better fit than I ever could have imagined. Yeah, as, as far as the anthems go, I put at least my top ten. I put I put I put uh, Germany, Italy, England, and Spain. Um, but my my two favorites actually one is. Um, uh, uh, Canada, which unfortunately they're not much for for soccer, but at least for right. for uh, uh, women's soccer, you can hear hear their anthem. And then, right? No, you, I, I agree with you yeah. on that. I mean, I, I covered a lot of hockey. Yeah. And uh, you know, to be in any arena where they're playing it, no, I agree. With you. And then, and then the other one actually is uh, New Zealand. I don't know if you've heard, if you, if you uh, remember that one, but that one um, there there's a video on YouTube of the New Zealand. Um, it's the uh, uh, rugby World Cup final, and it's in New Zealand, right. and it's it's an awesome anthem. Uh, it, I'll, I'll go I'll go look it up. I've yeah. heard it because we actually were there okay. uh, in 2000 for about a week with friends really? of ours who were classical musicians. But I'll look it up. Thanks. How about favorite stadium? Ah oh, man, that's interesting. You know, I I may, maybe because. I mean, the, the Mystica stadiums is one thing. I mean, I've been in, I've been in Bernabeu, um, you know, once. Uh, you know, you know, so many places that are famous. I've never been to, to South America, so I haven't been to uh, um, to to, Brazil, to Rio. But that's hard because so much of what I do is is oriented to work. So if if it's convenient for me, if I have good memories, I mean. I couldn't tell you a favor, but I just know that I've been blessed to be yeah. in Azteca, and uh, uh, I, I've been in Wembley, but not for any kind of World Cup match. Uh, uh, you know, France, Saint-Denis, I don't have any memories of it, but it was glorious to be there. But it would be it would be very hard to pick one. 
what do you think of the the shootout as a way to decide these big games? Well, I hate it, but I don't know any other way. I'm the exact same way. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I've, come, I've come to feel that, and and of course, being a, being in America, writing for Americans, being around Americans, I hear this all the time. Friends of mine say they really got to do something about that. You know, friends of mine who were athletes who played college basketball or baseball, that's right. They really got to do something. Uh, to 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 do away with that shootout, and I say, but but what is it? I mean, the gimmick of of uh, taking a player out, having an extra substitute. I mean, that might work. You know, one extra substitute just have somebody who can run. But then you'd have two or three people that are well rested in a, in a game for another fifteen minutes. I mean, they could play for hours because they get so defensive. Those guys are beat. I mean, watch to watch players in the extra thirty minutes when they have to play that. Uh, they don't have much left, so the play has slowed down appreciably, and that's why they do have somebody in there who can burn it a little bit on each team. They save somebody for the last, you know, 10 minutes or whatever of regular time, and there's just no way to do it. I mean, if, if, if you're gonna if you're gonna really uh, screw up the way the game is played, you know, have three on three or three right, on right, six or right. you know half court or right. you know, <laughs> all of that is worse than than penalties because the reality is while while everybody says it's a lottery i mean when you see two keepers hugging each other and mm-hmm. you know but still somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose and there's always stories involved i mean baggio what do they remember for baggio for you know right. great great person great player he's a friend of a friend of mine and you know, i feel like i'm connected to him a little bit um but what are they going to remember him for? For for flying from New York to L.A. with a torn uh, uh, quad muscle, you know, a pulled quad muscle, barely qualifying, you know, then barely having him go out there to play the match. So now he plays, a, you know, what, 100 and, 120 minutes, and, and he puts one over the roof. Uh, but that's, you know, that's part of the – Baracy, the same way. Baracy had arthroscopic surgery, mm-hmm. and they sent him out – volunteers. I'm the captain. I'll go first. They said, well, you... but, but there's old Franco Baresi, my favorite defender, by the way, and the same as, as uh, Baggio. Guy's coming back from, from knee surgery during the tournament, and now he's back to play the final, and he's, he, he, he misses too, but it turned out that he had insisted on shooting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely exciting to watch when it comes on. You know, you're, you're, you're definitely watching... Um, but yeah, I mean, as as you said, like I don't I don't like the lottery aspect of it, but there's not really a better way to do it, and so I think you know it's kind of kind of is what it is. I mean, um, is it is it a test of character? Um, Mia Hamm, whom, for whom I have great admiration, she was fading into the woodwork in uh, 1999, and the assistant coach, I'm blanking on her name, went up there and said, "Mia, you're the star of the team. Uh, you you have to take one." Mm-hmm. And I want to ask you about the state of American soccer. What do you think, other than the fact that it's not good, considering they did not qualify for the World Cup? <laughs> um, but what do you what do you see as the issues facing U.S. soccer? Um, what do you think we need to do to get back into the World Cup?
has since passed was a professional soccer player from Salvador, I'm sorry, from Guatemala, who went to Mexico and played a couple of years uh, of, of professional in their top league. While he was in Mexico, he was going to med school in Guadalajara. He now becomes a doctor in, in the States. He says, I could go out on Long Island Expressway further out into Suffolk County, where on Sunday they have choose-up games in uh, basically Latin communities where people come out and they, the best players in the town get together and they play a game. He said, I can find better moves, better players, uh, better passing in, in that game out on exit 63 on the Long Island Expressway than I see on the U.S. team. Now, all right, given, given some of it was hyperbole and some of these guys probably weren't in you know, top world-level shape right. <laughs> as you have to be. Yeah. You know, they probably worked on garden gardening trucks or, you know, God knows what. But but the point being that that he has a point and that we are not getting the most out of people who have grown up playing with their fathers, their brothers, their uncles, their cousins in a dusty field somewhere the way people do all, all over the football world, that we're getting... Um, System-produced players, nothing wrong with the system if football is in the blood. But, you, but in the United States, you're still missing a portion of it of kids that know that it's really okay to once in a while throw a, uh, uh, a really good pass upfield or to, to make a move and just to, that you've seen. You, you saw your cousin do it to your uncle, uh, you know, on a field that, that, that week. So, so kids, and, and it's bleached out of kids who have a flair for, uh, uh, you know, for inventing on the field, for creativity, kids who have a flair for it, or kids who've learned it from playing. We, we bleach it out. Our coaching system, male and female, are, uh, are, are going by the book, and the book says you do these drills, you get into shape. Um, don't, don't, don't rush up there. You're a midfielder. Stay back. You know? Well, what's that all about? Yeah, I totally agree. It seems like like with we compare it to basketball, it seems like um, I guess basketball has got some issues too with the AAU system. But still, you have that more of a sense of kids playing it, you know, like in the in the in the city and a little more kind of organic. Whereas soccer seems a little more kind of like over over managed. Well, everywhere you go now, yeah. you see uh, you see kids playing basketball in schoolyards. I mean, I remember walking around Bilbao now. You know, what ten years ago visiting mm-hmm. with. with relatives and we were in town there and uh, walking by this park at night and there are, there are guys practicing their moves even dribbling the ball between their legs or you know doing all that kind of hip or different stuff that is more you know that, that, that even their coaches wouldn't let them do because Europe is pretty disciplined basketball but they were practicing stuff that they'd seen on television NBA stuff and and we don't allow that in organized soccer so if you're telling kids, don't pull, don't even try the move that you saw, um, you know, Zidane or, um, you know, Marta do on the, the, play it by the book, you're, you're banishing that level of creativity from their arsenal. They won't be able to do it in a match if they can't do it in practice or just hacking around. And kids, kids in the United States don't play soccer on their own. Right. You know, if you, if you, uh, if if you get rid of the coaches, if the coaches weren't there and the kids play 
fight on their own. They'd solve it and they'd do stuff. Even if the captain was saying, no, no, you know, let, let's play a little bit more discipline, they'd say, come on, let's have some fun. And that's where you get to be better. So it, there's, there's that mentality, but there's also development. I don't think they're looking to, to draw young Latino kids in, and the expenses are overwhelming. I mean, my, I have a, uh, let me just put it this way, somebody I know uh, has played on a very good level of club youth football and will be going to college uh, you know, on, on a Division three basis next year. But in going through that, the, the trips uh, out of state, the, the plane rides, the bus trips, overnight, the hotels, what has cost that family? Um, you know, in money, in time, in focus on that, it's, it's nuts. And did you like Klinsman as a coach? I... I think I did. Yeah, I did too. I, I, I think, you know, coaches hit the rocks. Mm-hmm. A lot of coaches hit the rocks, and yeah. it's time for them to go. And I thought he coached uh, well in matches a lot of the time. Uh, I, I didn't agree with his decision on Landon Donovan, but I, I honestly would have to say that in that World Cup in 2014, I couldn't see one moment when – I said to myself, Jesus, there's a time to put Donovan in. You know, 67th minute, if they had him mm-hmm. ready right now, they could put him in there. I mean, they were in trouble in a couple of matches. It was this and that. And, you know, and they, and they did move on. for. But I, you know, it was still probably the wrong move, but I could understand him doing it. Other than that, I thought he coached well in matches. I thought most of his selections, I thought him taking advantage of what every other coach in the world would do, which is to find – players who, who could qualify for a U.S. passport. I mean, the U.S. isn't alone in that. Um, other nations do it. You know, people wind up playing for this country. You know, the, think of all the, uh, the people from the diaspora of French-speaking nations who wind up playing for France. I mean, mm-hmm. they're eligible, but, you know, half that great team in 98 was from, from the islands. Mm-hmm. Do you have time for some non-soccer-related questions? Sure. Go um, What's the, the best, best baseball... Um, uh, hitter and pitcher you've ever seen? Oh boy! Uh, <laughs> can, can I split the pitching? Yeah. Lefty Koufax. Yeah. Righty Gibson, and they're an entry to me. Same time, same era. Uh, you know, vastly different personalities, backstories, etc. But both of them with just great pitchers with a lot of brains and guts and mm. appeal. I mean, both are the best hitter I've ever seen. Um. I did a book on Stan Musial. I saw him play more when he was, the last couple of years when he was just about done. I only saw Ted Williams play maybe one or two games live because uh, I wasn't a big Yankee fan when he was playing. Um, DiMaggio, I think I, I don't think I ever saw him play live. Um, but, you know, those three guys in the same period, and since that's my childhood, you know, I could say Willie Mays, Willie could be pitched to, Henry Aaron, Clemente, uh, Frank Robinson, uh, you know, of, of the era when I was a young reporter. But just for sheer hitter, I'm going to go with the cliche and say that Ted Williams, of my time, of seeing pictures of him, hearing him talk, he has the aura to me. So I'm, I'm just, he wanted to be called the greatest hitter that ever lived, mm-hmm. and I'll go with it. I feel like sometimes players in the past 
are a little underrated. I wonder what you think about this. And I, and what I mean by that is um, sometimes it seems like like people of today just kind of assume like so and so, like whether it's Ted Williams or like Bill Russell in basketball, that that they were great for their era. But if you put them in today's game, um, they would just be um, maybe like average or above average because the athleticism is so much higher now. But I don't know. I, I kind of feel like like fundamentally a lot of those guys back then were really fundamentally sound. And I, I think that even if you just plopped them magically into today's era, they'd still be be really good. <laughs> I don't know. What do you, what uh, do you think? Fair enough. I right. mean, size is important. Yeah, right. Um, could Jim Brown play football today? Yeah. He'd play, you know, yes. Could, could Bill Russell play on any team? Yes. Would he be as dominant? Maybe not necessarily, yeah. but... Would would he be, um, you know, would he be a stalwart starter on a great team? I'm mm-hmm. sure. Imagine him playing for San Diego, for uh, San Francisco. Um, you know, Williams. Who wouldn't want a guy six two, skinny, putting on muscle as he got older, with great discipline? I mean, Bob uh, Barry Bonds had great discipline, but uh, Williams did before that. Yeah, actually, speaking of Barry Bonds, that was another question I had. Um, I have I have mixed feelings about the Hall of Fame, like when it comes to the steroid guys, and also Pete Rose. Like, part of me feels like like they they should be that they should be in there because it's just like a, a museum. Everyone in the era, not everyone, but most people in the era were involved with some kind of cheating. But then there's a part of me too where you know I I, I feel like cheating should have consequences, and so I don't know. I just, I just kind of have mixed feelings about that. Where do you stand on the whole Hall of Fame thing? Well, I love yeah. Rose as a player. I was around him a lot in the 60s. I mean, knew him, um, was around in dugouts and clubhouses with him and all that. You know, what he did as a player, I, I just loved his act. I lived in Louisville for a while. I was going to games up in Cincinnati. Having said that, he violated probably the most important rule that's posted anywhere, which is no gambling. They have it posted in at least three languages. Uh, on yeah. every clubhouse door, um, and and he's he's a sick puppy. He's he's sick and stupid uh, to defy them. They have the goods on him. They know he bet on on games. They know that there were he he bet on his team or he bet you know maybe even if he only bet on the Reds to win, the fourth day he wouldn't bet because old Fred Norman or some fourth pitcher was pitching you know whoever and uh, you know so he was giving his bets away and so. I, I think he violated. I put him in a different category. Yeah. I mean, he really, he really is sick and pushed it, and and is paying the price for being stupid. He never took good advice, which is Pete. You know, join Gamblers Anonymous. Um, you know, say you did. Show some evidence. Say you you know you screwed up. You know you're sick. He never would do it. And but you know, by the time he even made a pass out of it, it was way too late. So he's in a different category. The the, the steroids are are tricky because we were talking about this the other day of making it a, a, a mythical all-star team of Hall of Famers who use steroids. You know, by now, guys who, who are in or just going in or whatever, that it's pretty likely that they use steroids. And I won't even mention, you know, I won't even say who we were talking about. But, but the point being that they never got caught if their if their bodies got bigger, if their 
if their teeth start to come out their, out of their mouth, um, you know, and their, and their cheekbones doubled, uh, you know, and they, uh, you know, the signs of it, and that they had more power. You couldn't prove it. Nobody proved it. Baseball didn't want to test. That's baseball's fault. That's Bud Selig's uh, and the union. Uh, Bud Selig let the union put them over a barrel, and, and they were all to blame for that. So I find it hard. But but the ones that have, have gotten notoriety, I mean, Bonds, notoriety. I believe all the stuff that's come out about him. Clemens, I have no doubt all the stuff that's come out about him. Palmero. Uh, you know, guys have tested or been caught or admitted or, you know, Alex Rodriguez, you know, just could have, he and Barry Bonds, two of the most gifted young athletes you've ever seen. They were bound for the Hall of Fame when they were 20, and they both managed to cheat, I'm sure. I have no doubt that they, you know, we know A-Rod did. Right. So the, the question is, as long as the writers have a vote, and I know they're tightening it up, for writers and this and that. But as long as there's a whole generation of writers younger than myself who were covering while this went on and during the, the Mitchell report and this and that, and, and, I mean, it's going to get very tricky. You know, Big Poppy, you know, there's rumors about him. His name was on some list. They don't have the same kind of proof on him. Uh, a great story, great leader. You know, what do you do with a guy like that? Yeah. I, I, think, I think everybody's on a case-by-case basis. And the McGuire's and the Bonds of the world and the Clemens of the world who have only themselves to blame for doing it and getting caught, they have to accept the consequences. Mm-hmm. Then another kind of big picture question I have um, related to football, uh, what do you see happening with um, all of the stuff related to concussions and CTE? Um, I, uh, you know, I, I've heard people say that um, football – is not going to be around in 30 years. And that, that's really hard for me to believe given how popular it is, especially like in the South. But, um, but at the same time, it does seem like less, I, I could see less people playing it. Um, but I don't know, just like, where do you see that, that leading the next 10, 15 years? Well, we've certainly seen uh, horse racing and boxing were like among the top four when I was young. Yeah. And, Neither is anymore, uh, for different reasons. But but football is so popular now. But basically, these people are most of these players are gladiators. Um, when you see guys quitting after a year or two in the NFL because they're starting to believe the evidence that they're hearing independently, not particularly from you know even their union, and, not, and certainly not from the NFL, has been dragged into this. Uh, when they realize they've been used, you know, they, they, you play a year, you make, you know, $800,000, and then you go to grad school, it's a better deal than, than having your brains fried. So I think that, but, but will, will young people continue to want to play? Will parents continue? It's when you, when you see the, the social patterns and, dare I even say, the voting patterns in different places in the country – that it's hard to imagine that that everybody's going to say, let's get rid of the sport. Right. It's hard. I just, you know, culturally, uh, I mean, it is a great show, Friday Night Football, Friday Night Lights. What are you going to do? But but will there be parents that say, you're not playing? I mean, Barack Obama said, if I had a son, I wouldn't let him play football. I mean, he's a basketball 
Speaking of the president of the United States, um, being a New Yorker, do you have any Trump stories or you cross paths with him? Yes. I knew him when he owned the, uh, the New Jersey generals. Um, but he didn't know anything about his team. He would have press conferences and hang out afterward. And his wife, Ivana, would have to correct him. He would be saying things like, you know, my general manager, Walt Michaels, and she'd say, uh, 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 Donald, Walt Michaels is your coach. <laughs> um, he, he had, and I've also talked to him about boxing. I've done columns on him about boxing. Why do you allow boxing in your, your wonderfully affluent casinos in New Jersey, in, in Atlantic City? Mm-hmm. And um, he could not verbalize an answer. Uh, he had never read anything or any of the surveys on, you know, I would talk to him about Floyd Patterson and uh, Ali and all, you know, all these guys that were damaged goods from it. And um, he, couldn't, he couldn't speak from anything he'd ever learned about boxing, the pros and cons. He, he said, uh, you know, we just license it. We don't have anything to do with it. We, we just let them put the show on if they want. And uh, they, they, these guys are doing it on their own volition. That's all I could. He was he was surprisingly ignorant, even then. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, and then and you know, in terms of in terms of him, nothing. No, actually, I grew up about a mile away from him. Um, I'm five, six years older than he is. But his older brother was was. Uh, friends with friends of mine. He went to grade school with them, and they. I met him a couple of times. He was a, you know, raging alcoholic by then. Uh, lovely guy. Was very proud of Donald, um, and Donald honors him. I guess it's the nicest thing I know about Trump. Maybe the only thing nice thing I know about him hmm. is that he honors his brother, and he also, uh, I think, keeps his, uh, you know, has stayed away from drugs and and uh, alcohol and uh, you know caffeine. Hmm. So. Uh, the, only, the only thing positive I know about him, let's put it that way. Yeah. But but the point being that his brother, his older brother, had learning disabilities as a kid in grade school and um, was bright, was affable, people liked him, but he couldn't do the work and he acted out. He just fidgeted and they had to put him in private school. And, you know, they pretty much got him through school, and then he wanted to be a pilot, and he couldn't quite, you know, be any kind of pilot. But I think this Trump has the same uh, chemistry as his older brother, that he, he fidgets, he can't stay on a subject, he can't take in information. Uh, you know, I think, he's, I think he's damaged goods, you know, even, even beyond, uh, before the politics kick in. Mm-hmm. I said, I mean, you asked me, uh, you know, I happen to... No, no, yeah, that's, I that's to, good. That's I, a, yeah. I, didn't know, I didn't know Donald Trump until I was, yeah. you know, 40. And okay. covering the, the generals, and you know, I knew him, and then he was the owner, and I'd heard about him, through, you know, about his brother. But the point being that, uh, you know, I've, I've been around, you know, people that knew him, and, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a bad egg. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm kind of, um, I guess maybe not surprised anymore, but it, but the kind of lack of maturity, like, you'd think someone who's that old, like, I don't really normally think of 75-year-olds as being immature, but yet a lot of times his actions speak more to, to like, a, a seven- or eight-year-old. Yeah, well, that's true, and I think he's always been that way. I mean, yeah. we, we were, my wife and I were at some skating event in the garden in the, I don't know, 
exhibiting, or I, I forget what it was. And uh, we were in, I don't know if it was Trump's box, but I was there because of my connection to Trump, a, a Czech, C-Z-E-C-H, connection to Trump through Martina Navratilova, who knew some people. And so I, you know, I, Ivana got people in. So I was, I was there, and Trump couldn't make conversation. He was not an adult on any kind of level. He was, had his, that, that camel's hair coat on, he was pacing around, and he was bored, and he was restless, and uh, he just wasn't there. You know, and you look, it's like, like a kid. You say, well, you know, do they, do they have ADD problems or this, uh, you know, poor, poor kid. But that was like him. He just, he couldn't connect. He couldn't make our, my wife chatted with for, for a minute about being from Queens and, you know, my husband, but, but, or whatever it was. But the point being that she, she, we both looked at each other and said, you know, he's not really a, he's not really an adult. Yeah. And um, what are you up to now in retirement? Um, no book project. Yeah. Um, pretty much not worth doing anything for the times, maybe a magazine piece once in a while or, you know, something, but nothing, nothing much. Um, I have a website, which I guess you've seen. Yes. Mm -hmm. yep. com, and, um, you know, kids, grandkids, family, keep the mm -hmm. house going, keep healthy, uh, you know, re real, real deep retirement as opposed to the first couple of years when I was doing a lot of work. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, and that's fine too. I, I'm blessed. I've got great health, uh, still work out every day and, uh, you know, go in the city a lot, have a lot of friends from, you know, friends my age from high school and from uh, college, and I see a lot of them. So it's it's a very it's a very active and yet not uh, um, demanding life in that way. The demands are, uh, you know, watching yourself grow old and watching your friends, uh, you know, fall apart and, uh, you know, and worse, but, but uh, you know, we've been blessed. Well, thanks a lot. That was a lot of fun. I appreciate your time. Okay, man. It was let fun me, let talking me know, sports. Let me, let me know what you, what you do with it. And, I will, yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks, and uh, have a good, right, have a good right, night. Man, I look forward to your book, and uh, yeah. let me know how the podcast goes. Sounds good. Thank you, George. Take care. Bye. All right. Good night. So thanks to George uh, for joining me today. Uh, once again, his book is Eight World Cups, and you can find him online at georgevesey.com or on Twitter at georgevesey, uh, where Vesey is spelled V-E-C-S-E-Y. I love talking sports, and I could have talked to George for hours about all the things he's seen and the people he's covered. Um, and if you have any questions or comments for me, you can email me at sweeto37 at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at Project MacGyver, and my blog is themacgyverproject.blogspot.com. Thank you for listening.